Knowing how to speak and understand a new language can be an invaluable tool when traveling, meeting new friends, or just even to master a new skill. But it's not always simple when you're bogged down by textbooks and structure classes. That's why so many people trust Rosetta Stone. Rosetta Stone is the most trusted language learning program, available on desktop or as an app. It truly immerses you in the language you want to learn, like Spanish, French, Italian, Chinese, and more. You won't just be studying English translations. The Rosetta Stone intuitive process helps you pick up a language naturally, first with words, then phrases, then sentences. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com rs10. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com rs10 today. One of my favorite descriptions of who Vladimir Putin is comes from this memoir that his beloved elementary school German teacher published in the beginning of his time as president. She describes this incident of taking him out on a field trip to a movie in downtown Leningrad. And at some point on the field trip, there's a fight and she had to deal with a kid being on the pavement with a broken leg and calling the ambulance. And the next day she called in Putin. She was like, what was going on yesterday? And what was your role? And Putin, instead of saying, hey, I'm really sorry, this was you know, a big mess and I take my responsibility for losing my cool. Instead, Putin supposedly said to his elementary school German teacher, he said, you know, there are some people who just don't understand words and there are people who choose not to understand words and there are people who only understand force. He was 14 years old when he said this. It really, it just sounds lifted from the way he was talking to the world on the eve of invading Ukraine. I'm Julia Yaffe. This is About a Boy, the story of Vladimir Putin. Chapter 3, The Punk. People in Russia feel like violence is a legitimate way to establish your power to convey your feelings. It was all about physical power. He said, pay attention to this man. He's going to be very important. And nobody knew who he was. The code never really left. Like, you could leave the dvor, but a part of it would always live inside of you. By his own account, Vladimir Putin spent most of his childhood in the Dvor, the urban courtyard, along with other children of the Soviet baby boom. Kids like my father. That's where your friends are, where you ride your bike, where you play soccer. But there were competition between different uh, courtyards, and there were a lot of fights. What were they fighting over? Uh, it's territory. It's in, like probably in boys' blood. Protect territory, uh, belong to something. This was, for the most part, a boy's world. Where did the girls go after school? They had their own life. Even though I had an older sister, I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) You didn't know what she did? I don't know. It's a good question. Now I'm thinking about it. (laughs) The Dvor was a school of life that shaped the boys who graduated from it. The curriculum included everything from chasing soccer balls and playing soldiers and fascists making a game of their parents' experience in World War II, to fighting over turf and learning to live according to an exacting code of conduct. 
It was one founded on physical force, strict hierarchies, and a cartoonish idea of male honor. Essentially, every social interaction you had as a child, it happened in that courtyard. Here's Andrew Rifkin, a Russian-American writer who grew up in St. Petersburg. And these yards would, of course, form societies. Your courtyard would be a rival to the next courtyard. Like, each one of them would have sort of a gang of their own. The Dvor was small and intimate. It stripped its inhabitants of the anonymity of the big city outside, and that made it easier to enforce this code. There was no hiding in the Dvor. My dad once told me that being there was like living under an x-ray all day, every day. Reputation was destiny here, and you had to maintain it meticulously. Because if you messed it up, it was nearly impossible to undo. Being a part of a dwar, you cannot hide. Whatever you do, it stays in your record permanently. So people know who you are, understand who you are, what kind of person you are, and they know what to expect of you, and they will treat you accordingly. I would say they were a very watered-down version of prison yard rules. So explain what panyatia are. I've always had trouble explaining that word, panyatia. It translates as understanding, which is sort of a mutual understanding that you have with everyone else as to what the rules are. So panyatia in Russian is kind of a mafia term, and it describes so-called understandings between friends. This is Catherine Belton, an investigative reporter and author of Putin's People. It's a very, very kind of murky world, and it's very ambiguous, where actually you don't know whether you've crossed a line until somebody suddenly decides that you have. So essentially it keeps you on your toes all the time and always living in fear because the lines aren't clearly drawn. It's absolutely unwritten, but they're a little flexible. But you would have these, like, some basic rules, like you don't hit a girl, you can't pick on those who are younger than you. If your dvor goes to fight against another dvor, you have to participate, you have to fight. If you don't, and, you know, you chicken out of a fight, then your social reputation is gone because you're considered weak. So it was also all very much based on physical strength and on violence and on how you could exert that violence. Rule number one, if you state your intention, you better follow through. Explain, what, what does it mean, Patsans Kazal, Patsans Dil? This is basically that you have to be careful what you promise. Don't promise something that you cannot deliver. If you say, like, I'm going to beat you up, you have to beat that person up. Otherwise, you immediately lose your, you know, social credibility. And that social credibility, it would be very fragile. Rule number two, never show weakness. I remember I was in fist fight with two brothers, two twin brothers. I was probably nine or ten, maybe a year. I have not heard this story. And my father was watching it and cheering for me. Oh my God. <laughs> he, didn't, he didn't stop. Yeah. It. <laughs> because he grew up there. He understood it was part of the kind of upbringing. What was the fight over? Uh, they called me Kike, I believe. Again, as soon as you show that you can stand for yourself, you can fight, they will stop. As soon as they feel that you push over, they will continue to bully you. So you have to fight. Rule number three, 
Compromise is for the birds. People are not aware of lose-lose or win-win situation. It's only win-lose. If I see you winning, it means I'm losing. By letting this partner win, it means you, you're going to lose something. Rule number four, loyalty is paramount. The relationship in the yard, in the dwarf, they were very black and white. Either you're with us or you're against us. This is Russian investigative journalist Yevgenia Albats. If you're with us, you're 100% loyal. Any betrayal was punishable. I don't know whether it was punishable with death, but I think that in many cases it was punishable to the extent that a boy found himself in the hospital. Rule number five, might makes right. There were no intellectual competitions, sorry to tell you. They were not reading Pushkin, you know. It was all about physical power. Because of the emphasis on physical strength, being short would have been a massive handicap in the Dvor. It placed a boy at the bottom of the Dvor hierarchy and made him vulnerable to violence. Putin was quite small. Even today, as a full-grown man, he's about 5'7". This forced him to find other ways to defend himself on the street and to project power. Putin talks all the time about having to get into fights in the Dvor because he's a smaller kid and show that he can hold his own so that people are not going to be predating upon him because they want to test you out. This is Fiona Hill, former Russia director on the National Security Council and a senior fellow at the Brookings Institution. And Putin knows, obviously, that height is a factor of nutrition as well as genetics. We know that Vladimir Putin's mother starved, you know, and almost died. So did his father. And that's got to have, you know, some knock-on effects. For a small boy, uh, the war was a challenging enterprise. So they have to earn respect somehow differently. Putin eventually took up martial arts, for which he is so well known in the West. Putin, the judo master. But what many don't know is why he took up judo in the first place. He was a short, scrawny kid in a world where size and strength meant power and prestige. He needed something else to make up for his smallness. I got into sports when I was about 10 or 11. As soon as it became clear that my pugnacious nature was not going to keep me king of the dwar or school grounds, I decided to go into boxing. But I didn't last long there. I quickly got my nose broken. He couldn't succeed in dwar, so he had to find another community where everybody's equal. In judo, everybody has this weight category. You don't fight the bigger guy. He wants to train himself. He wants to overcome the constraints of his physique. And so, you know, he moves into judo because judo isn't about how big you are and how strong you are. It's about the moves. Judo is not just a sport, you know. It's a philosophy. It's respect to your elders and for your opponent. It's not for weaklings. Everything in judo has an instructive aspect. You come out onto the mat... You bow to one another, you follow ritual. It could be done differently, you know? Instead of bowing to your opponent, you could jab him in the forehead. It's this very special philosophy of fight. You should be very careful. You shouldn't allow emotions to go first. You wait. 
you wait till you see that your partner is weak and then very quickly you attack and put him on his back. It's not about negotiations. Extracurricular activities like judo and sambo, which was a martial art invented in the Soviet Union, were extremely popular among Soviet kids those days. In fact, my father took up sambo as a child. It was one of the many clubs you could join after school. Chess, dance, martial arts, music class, ice skating. All of it was part of the government's promise to raise Soviet children, while their parents worked to rebuild the country and make it a superpower able to compete with the United States. There was a concept that the state is in charge of bringing up a child. So the state should organize the way how the children spend their time after school. This is Mikhail Zigar, a Russian journalist and author of All the Kremlin's Men. So every Soviet kid had to go somewhere, had to have some hobby, and usually that ought to be some sports. And if you choose sport and you live in a troubled neighborhood, probably you might choose something that would help you fight for your life and for your dignity. Here's Nina Khrushcheva, Nikita Khrushchev's granddaughter and a professor at the New School. The chess clubs, the sports clubs, I mean, it was all, I mean, that was part of the Soviet education. I mean, and that's actually, that was one of the grandeurs of the Soviet system. I mean, one of the few good things is was 99% literacy. So people were educated, people read books, people knew how to play the piano. I mean, they were all peasants and workers. One of the plan is to make sure that they get educated so they can push the communist dream forward. According to his teachers, Volodya Putin was not a very good kid, and he was an even worse student. One of his teachers recalled that he was, quote, sneaky and disorganized, in constant motion, a cut-up. He was, at best, a C student. All he cared about was the dvor. Here's how his teacher, Vera Dmitrievna Gurievich, remembered it. He had friends from the neighborhood, two brothers by the name of Kavshov. And he used to prowl around with them, jumping from the roofs of the garages and sheds. Volodya's father didn't like that very much. His papa had very strict morals. But we couldn't get Volodya away from those Kavshov brothers. In fact, Volodya Putin was so badly behaved, so engrossed by the dvor, that at first he wasn't allowed into the pioneers. This was basically unheard of. The Pioneers were a communist youth organization that all Soviet school kids joined, starting in about the third grade. It was at this point that a Soviet child got their iconic red scarf. But Putin wasn't allowed in until the sixth grade. Here's what he told his biographers about it. I wasn't a pioneer, Putin said. I was a punk. The Russian word Putin used here was shpana. The biography's translators rendered it as punk, but shpana is a fuller word than that. A shpana is a petty criminal or hooligan, someone from the lowest rungs of society, a scoundrel who's not particularly successful. And more than that, a shpana is small and sneaky, devious. 
At Alma, we know the connection between you and your therapist matters. But if you're already feeling stressed and burnt out, the idea of trying to find a therapist you really connect with can be overwhelming. That's why Alma's focused on helping you find the right therapist for you. When you browse their online directory, you can filter your search based on the qualities that are most important to you. Then you can book a free 15-minute consultation call with any therapist you're interested in seeing. So you can get a feel for whether they're the right fit before you commit to a full-length session. Alma also makes it easy for mental health care providers to navigate insurance. That's why 95% of therapists in their directory accept insurance for sessions. So you can find care that's affordable without stressing about the paperwork. You want to talk to someone, but not just anyone. Alma is there to help you find the right fit. Visit helloalma.com therapy60 to schedule a free consultation today. That's helloalma.com therapy60. Putin's parents were suspicious of his taking up martial arts. They knew exactly why their son was doing it. Putin told his biographers that, quote, they were very suspicious. They thought I was acquiring some sort of ugly skill to use in the dvor, end quote. And they were right. Ironically, though, judo ended up being the thing that took Putin off the street. If I hadn't gotten involved in sports, I'm not sure how my life would have turned out. It was sports that dragged me off the street. To be honest, the war wasn't a very good environment for a kid. Putin's own parents basically gave up on him at a pretty early stage and thought, this kid's just so out of control, we're not going to be able to fix it. Here's Andrew Weiss. He oversees the Russia program at the Carnegie Endowment, and he's also the author of The Accidental Tsar, a graphic novel about Putin's life and rise to power. That seems to have been a big part of what drew Putin as a little kid to his judo coach, who seemed to have it together and who was willing to take a chance on him and invest in his progress. And someone who was more interested in him than his actual father, who seems to be an enigma. And it was only through his own desire to study judo and German and take things more seriously that he ever got back on track. Judo succeeded in getting Putin out of the Dvor and away from a life that, for so many other kids, eventually led to crime. His grades turned around, he became a serious student, but he was still trapped in a poor neighborhood with few ways up. Enter the KGB. It promised travel, education, and access to an elite tier of Soviet society, and it captured his imagination from a very young age. For kids like Putin, from his background, it was the only way to find himself among, you know, this cream de la cream of the Soviet society. And KGB guys, they were cream de la cream of the Soviet society. It was a way out of the grinding poverty of his Leningrad apartment. I mean, it was considered a very prestigious career, especially in those days of the planned economy when shortages were ubiquitous. Books and spy movies like The Sword and the Shield took hold of my imagination. One spy could decide the fate of thousands of people. The Sword and the Shield, Shit Image. The popular spy novel was written by a loyalist Soviet writer who had served as a war correspondent during World War II. The book came out in 1965, when Volodya Putin was 13, and the film adaptation came out three years later. It was a runaway hit. It showed the exploits of Alexander Belov, a Soviet spy who goes deep undercover in Nazi Germany, 
as Johann Weiss. In the film, Bilof is handsome and dashing, but he's no James Bond. There are no passionate sex scenes, no love story, and very few shootouts. The movies are psychological, slow-burn thrillers. And Bilof isn't a swaggering macho man like James Bond. He's low-key, quiet, ingratiating. He has perfect German. He listens more than he speaks. He lays low and plays the long game. And he never, ever forgets that he serves his motherland. In fact, it's the theme song of the film. Where does the motherland begin? This song would become one of Putin's favorites long into adulthood. So it's worth examining the words a little bit more closely. Where does the motherland begin, the song asks. With a picture in your alphabet book? Or from good and loyal friends from the neighboring dvor? The relationships in the dvor, in other words, were so important to this generation that within them lay the foundations of patriotism. In his teen years, Putin just gobbled up these pulp novels that glamorized the Soviet KGB, which was a big part of pop culture at that time, as well as the movies and TV miniseries of the early 1970s that also made the KGB seem like some kind of Soviet version of Mad Men or something, you know, just full of very, you know, handsome people doing daring things to protect the motherland. The Sword and the Shield was part of a larger rebranding of the KGB. The agency was formed right after the Bolshevik Revolution and was originally called the Chika, short for the Emergency Committee. Its job had been to hunt down class enemies and counter-revolutionaries and to wage the Bolsheviks' first campaigns of political terror. By the 1930s, the agency was known as the NKVD, the National Commissariat of Internal Affairs. And starting in 1936, it carried out what was perhaps Joseph Stalin's greatest crime the Great Terror. What began as a purge of the elites quickly spread to the general population. People began disappearing in the middle of the night, and their loved ones waited years, sometimes decades, to learn what had become of them. At the height of the terror, there were about 2,200 arrests and 1,000 executions per day. By the time Stalin died in 1953, nearly a million Soviet citizens had been executed, and over 28 million more had passed through the gulag. According to historian and author Anne Applebaum, nearly three million of them perished there from disease, starvation, exposure, and violence. It was no wonder that the mere sight of a member of the NKVD was enough to terrify. Stalin died less than six months after Putin was born, and Stalin's successors decided to reform and rebrand the secret police, which was now called the KGB. The new KGB would be an organization that was patriotic, valorous, and maybe even a little glamorous. There was a huge attempt to, to make KGB popular. And uh, in late 50s and early 60s, as the Cold War was heating up, a huge propaganda campaign was started in Soviet Union. First, to explain that the West is the enemy and that the new enemy is America. 
And second, to raise the new generation of the Soviet fighters against the Western menace, against America. The sword and the shield, which dropped when Volodya Putin was 15, depicted the secret police in exactly that way. Aside from a fleeting mention of the Great Terror, the agency is portrayed as one that is doing vitally important work against the Soviet Union's main enemies, the Nazis. Like so many boys of his generation, Volodya Putin was hooked on the series. But he took his obsession one step further. He decided to join the KGB. When he was in ninth grade, Putin tried to get a job by knocking on the front door of the main KGB building in Leningrad. And there's a funny scene in the book where he is accosted by the guy who answers the door and says, what are you doing here, kid? And Putin says, well, I want to work here. And the guy at the door says, you can't just walk in. We don't take walk-ins. You've got to go to college or serve in the military. And this person, apparently, if you believe Putin's recounting, when Putin says, well, what should I study in college? He says, I don't know. Go to law school, buddy. Get out of here. And Putin is indeed you know, determined from that moment on to get into the best law school in Leningrad. And he does. You know, positions were largely reserved for party members, kids, or people from the middle class of the Soviet Union. And he was none of those things. It makes the fact that he's tapped to enter the KGB really remarkable. In this period, he got summoned to a meeting where someone didn't tell him what they wanted to talk to him about, but said, basically, come by after school and we want to talk to you. And it was a, a sort of guarded conversation where a KGB recruiter said, we want to talk about your future. You've got lots of years ahead of you. Have you ever thought about a job in the organs? But even till the very end of the meeting, he doesn't say the words KGB. Is your child struggling with a specific subject or need help with homework? Are they asking questions that you're not sure you can fully answer? IXL Learning is an online learning program for kids. It covers math, language arts, science, and social studies. IXL is designed. This program will improve your kids' grades. Studies done in almost every state in the country. The kids who had IXL are consistently doing better. Powered by advanced algorithms, IXL gives the right help to each kid no matter the age or personality. And it doesn't have to eat up all your time. One subscription gets you everything for all the kids in your home, pre-K to 12th grade. So don't miss out. One in four students in the U.S. are learning with IXL. IXL is used in 95 of the top 100 school districts in the U.S. Make an impact on your child's learning. Get IXL now. And listeners can get an exclusive 20% off IXL membership when they sign up today at IXL.com audio. Visit IXL.com audio to get the most effective learning program out there at the best price. Hey, I'm Brett Podolsky, co-founder of The Farmer's Dog. We make fresh food for dogs. We started the company when we saw what a huge difference it made in my own dog, Jada, when she stopped eating ultra-processed kibble and started eating fresh, whole food. The farmer's dog food isn't fancy. It's just real food delivered to your door in pre-portioned packs. It's better for them and easier for you. Get 50% off your first box at thefarmersdog.com slash podcast. That's thefarmersdog.com slash podcast. In 1975, Putin officially joined the KGB, but his career proved far less glamorous than that of Alexander Belov in The Sword and the Shield. From the get-go, his KGB career doesn't go anywhere. He ends up in these jobs like tailing dissidents and breaking up illegal gatherings of underground artists and writers, chasing foreigners around. 
And I think the only overseas assignment he got was very telling. After waiting a decade, he doesn't get sent to West Germany. He's a fluent German speaker. He doesn't get sent to East Berlin, where there's a thousand people in the Soviet residentura. He gets sent to Dresden, which is a sleepy backwater East German city. And he's put in a small KGB office with six other people. It's just not the mark of a high-flying person whose career was going well. It's the mark of someone who is being put out to the field to do pretty limited tasks. As with most of Putin's biography, there's a bit of controversy about what he actually did in Dresden. At first glance, uh, getting posted to Dresden sounded like Putin hadn't really achieved or impressed anyone at all. Dresden was known really as a backwater. It was a very quiet town far away in the east. And it was so quiet that the locals called it the Valley of the Clueless because they were in a slight dip in the kind of the topography, so much so that sometimes the the radio waves wouldn't reach them because they were in this valley and they didn't know what was going on. But in fact, though, because it was a backwater, it actually made it perhaps even riper and better ground for spies like Putin to operate in. The West wasn't looking at what was going on there at all. Dresden was home to kind of a big electronics plant called Robotron, which had already uh, cloned the IBM. And it was kind of a key cog in uh, KGB efforts and Soviet efforts to steal and replicate Western technology. So for Putin and for other KGB officers there, it was kind of a, a key place to try and recruit Western agents, Western businessmen who would visit Dresden, they would visit the Robotron plant, and they basically all had to stay in the same hotel. It was called the Hotel Bellevue, and it was run by the Stasi Department of Tourism. And basically the Stasi and the KGB had kitted out the entire hotel with bugs, with filming devices. Dresden was also a great place to learn a skill that would prove very valuable later on. How to launder money. His arm of the KGB, the Foreign Intelligence Division, could basically see the writing was on the wall for the communist bloc. They began kind of creating all these front companies, the shell companies, to siphon funds through in order to survive in some future when they might not be in power, or perhaps when they would be in power, but they would be a, a market economy. So with the Stasi, he would have learned some of these techniques. More importantly, for Putin, Dresden was also a a training ground in active measures against the West, in disrupting the West in the most violent of ways. So we know that in those days when the Soviets and the KGB couldn't compete directly with the West economically or militarily, they sought to resort to these underhand, covert, active measures to try and disrupt and undermine their enemy. And this could be anything from disinformation to assassinations or actual terrorist activities. However significant or insignificant his work had been in Dresden, Putin never became anything more than a mid-level officer. After nearly two decades in the KGB, he hadn't made much of a name for himself, and by all accounts, was not all that memorable. Putin was always very unassuming. 
he was grey, he was quiet, and he faded into the background. So people don't really remember that much about him. So how did a quiet, unassuming, mid-level KGB officer come to rule the largest country in the world within a matter of just years? If you ask Nina Khrushcheva, it's helpful to think about Putin as a moth. It was a metaphor that came to her when she first met Putin back in the 1990s, well before his name was recognizable to most anyone outside of Russia. And so Putin was there sitting at the very end of the theater, in the very back, and looking down, looking what's there. And a friend who used to be a KGB man, he said, pay attention to this man. He's going to be very important. And nobody knew who he was. And I looked at him and like, who is that? I mean, please. And I didn't believe it. He looked pimply, I mean, small, gray, like a moth. And he said his nickname, that's how I knew his KGB nickname, which is the moth. The moth? And oh that God, I Like the kind of moth that eats your clothes. Exactly. So it sits quietly right there in the darkness of your closet. And there's one hole and there is another hole and you spray it and then there's a third hole. And then you open it, it's like the whole sweater is gone. So I think the experience, the early experience of the Dvor, where he was cleverly operating, being slight, being small, not being a good student, not having important parents, I mean, he was, we also have to remember that he never became any more than a lieutenant colonel, which is not really a big title. So he had to operate in this way, in the mothy way. And as that moth, he sits in the closet until he can get out and take over. Now he's the president of 11 time zones with nuclear power. Up next how Ushpana from the Dvor conquered all of Russia and took on the world. About a Boy, the story of Vladimir Putin is written and hosted by me, Julia Yaffe, directed by Valerie Thomas, produced by Margot Gray, edited by Chris Basil, mixing and mastering also by Chris Basil, production assistance by Bill Schultz, theme music by Kravastok, Special thanks to John Kelly, Ben Landy, Andrew Rifkin, Alex Bigler, Jenna Weiss-Berman, Maura Curran, Josephina Francis, Kurt Courtney, and Hilary Schuff. Listen and follow About a Boy, The Story of Vladimir Putin, an Odyssey original podcast in partnership with Puck on the Odyssey app or wherever you get your podcasts. <laughs>